So we've taken a quite a long pause. Uh, we went through the summer and uh, had our Thrive series, a family focus. Uh, so we paused from our series in Nehemiah, Forward by Faith. And now we're jumping back into it and jumping into Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, as I've mentioned in the previous weeks, even back to school Sunday, uh, a lot of times throughout the summer, students forget stuff. So during the first few weeks of school, what happens, students? What do teachers do normally the first week of school at least? What do they do in reference to the, the material from the previous year? They review. They go over. So we're going to do a quick review. Even though we're not school, there's not going to be any bells for the next session. Uh, no test today, but we do want to do a quick review. We start off with the setting of Nehemiah. And in first place, why study the Old Testament? Why do we look into the Old Testament? Well, there's a lot of principles and a lot of foundation uh, that we see in the Old Testament, so it's certainly worthy of our time and worthy to study the Old Testament. Uh, we believe in the whole Bible, the Old and the New Testament. Yes, the New Testament is, is very practical and helpful. We spend a lot of time in the New Testament, but don't want to uh, neglect many of the truths found in the Old Testament. So that's why we study even the book of Nehemiah. We looked at the main people and places involved. The purpose to be reminded of God's justice, to be encouraged by God's display of love. As we see him responding to the people of Israel who oftentimes would rebel, repent, and be restored. And then they would rebel again, repent, and then be restored again. We see God's display of love and then also learn from Nehemiah's faithful obedience. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah began to respond to a need, you know, both inwardly and then God used him uh, to actually go to Jerusalem, begin to uh, rebuild the walls. The walls were still in shambles. Seventy years after the temple had been uh, rebuilt, they were still in shambles, and Nehemiah responded to that need. Nehemiah chapter 2, we were challenged to recognize our fears. Fear, fear of failure, ridicule, sacrifice. Now, some of you may you know, think, oh, Pastor, I don't have a lot of fears, but all of us have some fears. Some of them aren't, you know, they, they don't seem very logical. Uh, we went through, in fact, that particular message, we went through a lot of the phobias that people experience. And uh, some people have fear of butterflies even. It's not a very logical fear, but we all have some types of fears. And we learned from Nehemiah how to respond to those by talking to God faithfully, listening to God intently, and then following God passionately. Nehemiah chapter 2 uh, into chapter 3, verse 32 we followed Nehemiah's journeys. He moved forward by faith together with others. He wasn't trying just to be a one-man show. He led by faith. He led by experiences that God had already given him. And as you look back at your life, you may have experiences that you never would have chosen. But God can use those experiences for you to encourage others and to lead others to follow Christ. As Nehemiah did, I hope that you'll do the same with experiences that God has given you. Good and bad. That you'll learn through it. He led with great expectation of what God would do. This is tough because we often live in the reality of the moment. You know, what do I see now? How can I see the results happening now? But Nehemiah looked in great expectation as he looked. You may remember the, the phrase was used in Nehemiah of, of much rubble, of great ruin. But yet he looked at the, the walls around Jerusalem and saw great expectation of what God would do. He led others to embrace together what God wanted them to do collectively as a body, as a people of Israel. 
One Hope Church and those Christians in Metro Atlanta, may we look together and, and work together to do what God has called us to do in our circles of influence. Then Nehemiah 4 and also chapter 6, we kind of did both of those chapters at the same time, facing opposition. Even though Nehemiah was sure this is exactly what God wanted him to do, he faced opposition in the journey. And it came in many different ways. We saw him face discouragement, intimidation, distraction, false accusations, defamation, and even deception. And you and I will face opposition as we follow Christ, as we stand up for him. So as we saw Nehemiah respond to those in a godly manner, may we do the same. And then in Nehemiah chapter 5, we saw Nehemiah model servant leadership. We saw that servant leadership is God-centered, it's others-oriented, but it's also personally displayed. I learned visually. Any other visual learners? You raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a visual learner. I learned visually. That's kind of, uh, I like YouTube videos. Uh, I like my coaches when I was in, in athletics. I like my coaches to show me, you know, how do you shoot the ball? Well, how do you tackle in football? How do you block? Well, how do you do these things? I want to see it. And Nehemiah modeled servant leadership May God help us to do the same. Now, as we get to Nehemiah 5 then and look back, there are a lot of reasons and a lot of circumstances that would tend to make it easier for spiritual revival. The temple's been rebuilt. God has used secular kings even to authorize Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah to go back from, to, to leave Babylon where they were in captivity, go back to Jerusalem, the, the temple has already been rebuilt. The walls by this point in Nehemiah chapter 5 have already been rebuilt, if I remember correctly, in 52 days, in fact. We've seen some very strong leaders like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. However, we're going to see soon that all of that wasn't enough. That God's word was key to spiritual revival. And I'd say it's similar to our culture today. There are a lot of reasons why spiritual revival should be easy. There are a lot of churches, but unfortunately there aren't as many who are willing to be the church throughout the week. There are, there are millions of Christians, but there are not as many followers of Christ. There's many who would say, yes, I believe in God, but yet practically as they live, they live more like atheists than even what they say verbally that they believe. So I want to look in Nehemiah chapter 8 today, and we'll begin this. This will be part one. Next Sunday, Lord willing, will be part two of some elements of spiritual revival. How does this come about? First of all, we see spiritual revival is, isn't just the right combination of external circumstances. So even though the temple was rebuilt, even though the walls were done, even though there were some, some great leaders, even though the, the people were back in kind of their homeland, wasn't enough. Spiritual revival isn't just the right combination of external circumstances. You know, it's important to remember that spiritual revival is not just an event. How many of you, in, when you're growing up, and, and I know there's a lot of different backgrounds here, so this, there's no shame if you don't remember this or if you didn't live this, and I, I realize I'm 46, but any of you remember going to revival services growing up? Yep, come, come to our revival services, you know, this next week, uh, Sunday through Friday night. And, and I think the intention was very good. 
Spend time in God's word and fellowship and be with God's people and hear God's word preached. But I think one of the unfortunate consequences is those of us who maybe grew up in that era can think about revival as an event. Yeah, I went. I'm going. I'm going to be there at the service. But spiritual revival is much more than an event. It's much more than showing up on Monday night or Wednesday night or men's night on Thursday night. It's much more than all of that. It's much more than an event. You know, it's not even just the place, the pastor or the programs of the church that will result in spiritual revival. These are some of the big components, especially in American Christianity. Even in Brazilian Christianity, as as we lived there for 18 years, I noticed a lot of these same things. The place oftentimes takes precedence, even more so sometimes than, than the centrality of God's Word. What kind of building do you have? What are the facilities like? Do you have a good gym? Do you have ball fields? Do you, you know, what is the place? What are the furnishings? How is the lighting arranged? Well, you know, what, what, is, what are the pews like? Are they, are they comfortable? What does what coffee taste like? That's a big deal now, right? What's the coffee taste like? I don't drink coffee. So, you know, I've asked my girls, you know, how does our church's coffee taste? And we've got mixed reviews on that. So, but it's much more than about the place. Because I want to draw your attention to Nehemiah chapter 8 in verse 1. Notice where the people are gathered in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into what? The square. Uh, Some of you may, if you have the King James, some of you may even see it says the street. All right, so think for a moment. Were there nice furnishings? Did they have, you know, hot steaming Jerusalem brew? You know, what was the place like? What was the facility like? Well, it says they were in the square. They were in the street. We need to be careful that we don't elevate the, the place, the facility, higher than God's word. It's not the pastor. You know, as a pastor myself, and as God's given me the privilege to uh, lead and be an under-shepherd of this flock, of this local body of Jesus Christ, I consider it an immense privilege to do that. But also see that it is a great responsibility. That as I lead, as I try to be an under-shepherd to you, first of all, imitating as best as I can Jesus Christ, I want to make sure that what we do here is not just built around me. And biblical churches shouldn't be just built around a, a rock star pastor. Sometimes it'll take time, but eventually... There's going to be consequences if a ministry is built around just a strong personality. Eventually, it will show. Because spiritual revival is not just about one person. In fact, leave something, with me. Leave something in your Bibles in Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, rather. And turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Look at verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It's been saddening to see even some of churches as we ministered in Brazil and, and even now some of the supporting churches that have helped us in church plants in the past. Some who have had their heyday and they, they grew and they, were, they seemed to be really reaching many people for Christ, but uh, maybe as a, as a strong leader, you know, kind of uh, transitioned or maybe even went on to heaven. And then that church struggles to, to continue on the ministry. And sometimes even to the point of desperation where they're looking for the next big name 
the next big name that can bring the crowds in, but often, and we've seen it happen in some of the churches where when that big name leaves, well, those people leave with him because the ministry is being built around a man and not God-man, Jesus Christ, and his word. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That is my primary job. Am I going to be involved in ministry? Absolutely. But my primary responsibility and job is to equip and to help train and to get you all also doing more and more of the work of the ministry. We continue on, it says, for building up the body of Christ, in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into who? Yeah, I want to hear that loud and clear. We're to grow up into who? Into Christ. He has to be the focus. So the minute we're tempted to say, boy, man, I just, but the pastor, and then the pastor, okay, be careful. The under-shepherd, I as the under-shepherd, and as God uh, provides and allows, and I hope he does, as we can at one, at one point in the future, if God allows, have multiple pastors that are being under-shepherds, whether they're lay pastors or, or paid positions, but having multiple men leading this congregation forward, may we always remember this is our purpose, and not to be out in the front and elevated above Christ. We would grow into Jesus Christ. Then verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, notice, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Spiritual revival is not about a place, it's not about a pastor, and it's not even about programs. You know, think with me as you, as you read through the book of Acts, as you read through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, I want, I want you to, to remember maybe some of your recollection of those books, and I, and I want you to think about these questions. Who was the youth pastor? Um, make sure I get this church right. Yeah, the Church of Antioch. Who was the youth pastor? Oh, you can't remember. Okay, well, I'll ask you something else. Who was the kids minister at the church in Corinth? You know, the Corinth kids group? Who was the kids minister? Who was the young adult pastor in the church in Jerusalem? Oh, goodness, pastor, I, I can't remember any of those names. Do you know why? Because they're not mentioned. So some of the ministries that we have grown to think are essential to spiritual revival aren't even mentioned in the New Testament. Now understand this, I, I, we, we love kids, we love young adults, we love college program, and God can use those ministries to help fulfill the mission of the church. But spiritual revival does not depend and should not depend on the programs of a church. Because God may move you to somewhere where there's not churches that have huge programs. Now here in Metro Atlanta, obviously there are. You can, you've got your pick. 
But wherever you move, God can use you even if the church doesn't have the menu of programs. So be careful. You don't become dependent on, well, if it doesn't have this, I can't grow in Christ. And if it doesn't have this, well, then we really can't grow. No, we can't be dependent on the programs, but we have to look at the centrality of God's Word. We also see that spiritual revival is not merely an emotional experience. It's not merely an emotional experience. Hand in hand, in some ways, with the, with the idea of the place or, or the facility, is the idea that, boy, we have to, to create you know, this atmosphere and this emotional experience that will just continue to be bringing people back so they can kind of get their, you know, their religious fix for the week. Yes, we want to do things with excellence. There's nothing wrong with that. And I believe God deserves our very best. So may that be clear. But the moment we begin to put our faith and our trust and and banking on these external things to produce spiritual revival, we've missed the point. When when sometimes we're more concerned about, well, how exactly is is the lighting just right now? Well, how exactly is the special effects during the music? Well, how exactly, okay, but those things don't bring about spiritual revival. It's not merely an emotional experience. In fact, to see a little bit about this, uh, look, look with me in Acts chapter 2. Leave, uh, once again, something in Nehemiah 8. And look with me in Acts chapter 2. We're not going to read this whole passage, but it may be helpful if you want to kind of look at that as I summarize some of these verses. We're going to, in, in a way, look at an at a overview of verses 1 through 41 And in the first 13 verses, we see a phenomenal thing that God does, a miraculous thing, in fact. The day of Pentecost, we call this. And as the disciples are gathered in the upper room, all of a sudden they begin speaking in such a way where many nationalities begin to hear the wondrous works of God in their own language. That's pretty phenomenal. As we moved to Brazil in the year 2000, and it took us about a year's time to really become fluent in the language of Portuguese, there were many a day where I thought, God, can't you just give me the the gift of tongues right now? I would love to be able to speak Portuguese like that. Well, as the disciples were talking, all the different nationalities, and in fact, you see uh, people from the, the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, visitors from Rome, Cretans, Arabians. All of these were hearing in their own language the wondrous works of God in Acts 2, 2, 1 through 13. So much so that the majority of the people began to to just be amazed and began to, to ask, what is the reason for this? Or in other words, how is this happening? Others mocks, said, no, well, these guys, people are just drunk. So that's the first 13 verses. And God certainly did a miraculous thing and used the Holy Spirit to give credence to what Peter was about to stand up to say. But if spiritual revival was only an emotional experience, Peter could have stood up in verse 14 and said, hey, that's enough. It's all, everything's already been done. You can go home. But that's not what happened. In Acts 2, 14 through 41, 
So almost the time in Scripture that we see transpiring here is almost the double amount of verses. We see Peter get up and he begins to preach Jesus Christ. So God used, yes, the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, those everyone hearing in their own language, the wondrous works of Christ. But then together with that, and even I would say a more important part of that aspect was Peter getting up and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spiritual revival is not just an emotional experience. Unfortunately, I would say that many of our churches have gotten this flipped. And the majority of the, of the worship time is spent in, in all of things that are trying to gear for people to have an emotional experience. Now, understand clearly as well, and I want you to, to hear this. Our emotions should be and can be involved. God made us with emotions, did he not? So no, I don't believe we should just be standing there either and going, yeah, God is so good. No. Yes, he gave us emotion. But if, if I only feel that I've been to church, if I, you know, if I go away with just this, this spiritual high and, man, I, I am just emotionally pumped, well, what about when we're not? What about when we face persecution? What about when we're sick? What about when uh, others around us at school or at your job or in your ball team aren't too excited that you're a Christian? That's not very emotionally driven then. So spiritual revival is not just an merely emotional experience. But we will see in Nehemiah chapter 8, first of all, that spiritual revival involves the following, a reverence for God's word. A reverence for God's word. Verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. I want to take a minute and look at the messenger that God is using right here. His name is Ezra. It's first time, first mention in the book of Nehemiah. However, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of this study, uh, for, for many, many years in the, the, in the Jewish scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah were together as one book. And Ezra was the second, led the second return of Jews from Babylon back to Jerusalem. His main purpose was to bring about spiritual restoration. So we see Nehemiah here, or, or Ezra rather, uh, is first mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. Go back then to Ezra with me, if you would. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Who is this Ezra? What, what is he all about? What is he passionate? Well, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10 gives us a very clear summary of what Ezra was passionate about. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and specifically, this would be Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, to study the law of the Lord. Secondly, to do it or to follow the law of the Lord. And then thirdly, to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So we see one man, Ezra, but he has a threefold purpose. I want to study God's word. I want to follow God's word. And then I want to teach others to do the same. So the man Ezra, the scribe, he's also referred to as a priest, he has a very serious dedication and reverence for God's word 
And then he begins to passionately teach it to others. In Nehemiah chapter 8, in verse 2, it says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Then notice what Ezra does. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Probably about six hours. Um. I don't plan on keeping you here for six hours this morning, but that's a long time, isn't it? I have a hard time watching a football game that goes six hours, and I love football. But there was certainly a reverence here for for God's Word. And through the book of Ezra, we're going to look even in the passage, the people, the Jews, were in desperate need of revival. So as Ezra reads God's Word, he reads it to those who... Are there that can understand all should be, all that can understand should be under the hearing of God's word. It says, You read it from morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. We also see the Levites here in this passage. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 7. They also help the people to understand the law. It says, Also, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 7, also Jeshua. Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah. I'm just sad that Austin and Katrina aren't going to name their child any of these names. So it's helped the people to understand. These are the Levites, and they help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Nehemiah 8 and verse 8. Chapter 8 and verse 8, it says, They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And then the second part of Nehemiah 8 and verse 8, it says, And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So they helped people understand the law. They, they read the law, the word of God, and then they helped people to they explain the law. They wanted them to, to clearly understand, what does this mean for you? Any similarities to what we do every Sunday as we gather together at Northwest Classical Academy? Any similarities? This is exactly what we're doing. This is the foundation for why I get up and I open the Bible and I, and I go through things. It's not because I think you, you all are dumb and, and just not intelligent to read it for yourself. But I pray that, that as I study and as I seek God's face and as I serve as an under-shepherd, that I can in some way, as Ezra and the Levites did... Help you to understand God's word. Help to give the sense, the meaning, the application. But God wants you to do the same. As you read and as you learn that you would help others. Remember in Ephesians 4, to do the work of the ministry. Now that's the messenger, Ezra, but let's look at the audience. And again, I want you to get kind of an idea of the desperate need of revival they're in. Ezra chapter 9. Look with me in Ezra chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3. Although the temple had been rebuilt, although the walls had been completed, Nehemiah knew, Ezra knew, that they were in desperate need of true spiritual revival. And we go back to Ezra chapter 9 because what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8 isn't just out of the blue. 
The people don't just come to Ezra and say all of a sudden, hey, why don't you go grab the law of the Lord and read it to us by chance? God had been working and Ezra had been ministering all, all throughout the book of Ezra. And I want to see a glimpse of, of why and what he was uh, facing even with the people. Look with me in Ezra chapter 9, then verses 1 through 3. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment, my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. So the audience was in desperate need of revival. We'll see next week, Lord willing, as, as we see this group of people, even in Ezra chapter 9, begin to be aware of the sin that they had committed, but also then repent of the sin. We'll see in Psalm 106 even the severity of what it meant for them to marry those from the faithless countries. Peoples who would even give their own babies in sacrifices and in live worship acts to the false gods. So this was a serious deal. Certainly was, was uh, committing spiritual adultery against God Jehovah. In beginning not only to intermarry, but to adopt the practices and to serve the false gods and even begin to follow some of the wicked and abominable practices that the nations around them had done. So Ezra understood these people are in desperate need of revival. The audience was in desperate need of revival, but also all who could understand needed to hear God's word, as we saw in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 2. So back in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 2, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So that's why we do our best to make the Bible clear and to give the sense and to explain from early childhood, even in our nursery, we're trying to invest and, and speak truth and pray through our One Hope Kids ministry into the teen years and young adults and then all the way up until, you know, 89 or 95 or if, or if Mike's mom ever visits at 98. We want to do that all throughout life because every single person who can understand should be under the hearing of God's word. We see also in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 3, all who could understand were in the hearing of God's word, but also they set aside time for God's word. They set aside time for his word. I've read it once, but I'll read it again. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. You know, it seems so basic, but yet it's so, so very difficult to reserve time to read God's Word. It's almost as if, now none of us have Bibles, whether on your phone or a physical copy, none of us have Bibles that have combination locks on them, I don't think. 
But it's almost as if that's the way it is, that it's just like so difficult to set aside the time to read God's word, yet spiritual revival will not happen without time dedicated in his word. Pastor, I just want to know God's will, and I want to know, you know, how I can move forward. Well, are you spending time in God's word? Wow, well, okay, well, it's not going to happen. Spiritual revival won't happen. Oh, but, but pastor, I'm just, I'm facing this, and I really want God to help me here, and I'm, I'm looking at him. Are, are you spending time in God's word? Oh, I'm just so busy. There's so, so much going on. Well, spiritual revival won't happen because we see that they set aside time for God's word. Not only do they set aside time, but we see also in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 3 that they listened closely to God's word. They listened closely to God's word. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So as we read, as we sit maybe here or in other, in other occasions, as we sit under the hearing or as we open it ourselves and read, may we listen intently God, help me to see and hear what you have for me. We were given, uh, I think my mother-in-law found some old bingo cards. And some of you in our church have played bingo at our house. And we don't gamble, you know, when we play bingo, but we, we have a good time. But when Kim or whoever's calling out the bingo numbers, everybody else is there and they're listening intently. B5, G35. It, what, what was that? Listening intently. Oh my goodness, can we do the same and more for God's word? Lord, help me to listen intently. Never forget how saddened, shocked, disappointed I was when I took my two oldest daughters to visit a Christian college several years back. They were praying about where God would have them to go, whether it be a you know, state university somewhere. And if that was where God led, we wanted them to do that. Or a Christian college, we wanted them to have exposure to several Christian colleges. So we went and visited a Christian college, and we sat in on one of their chapels. And as I began to look around, I saw students purposefully sleeping. Now, I want to I say this. We're humans and we have weaknesses, and I have slept many times in sermons that I didn't purposely, I didn't like bring my pillow, and you know, it, sometimes it happens. But these students, I mean, it was almost as if they were like, you know, they get in their seat and they just kind of snuggle down, get their backpack just right. And they're, it's like, this is my nap time. It was very clear. No, they came to sleep. Other students on their phone sending messages back and forth. You know, they'd send a message, and you see somebody up two rows ahead going, <laughs> looking around. Other students, you know, doing homework. I thought, man, this is sad. This is supposed to be a time where the students that can get away from their math and their science and their history or, or engineering or whatever class it is and come and be encouraged from the hope of God's word. Yet it seemed like so many of them had no idea what was going on during the chapel service. It wasn't long after that that college closed down, and I would say one part of that probably was a lack of spiritual revival among the student body. May God help our churches to never be that way. And yet, if we depend on the place, 
If we depend on the pastor, if we depend on the programs for spiritual revival, it's going to be very easy to walk into some congregations sometimes and see people who have very little interest about what is actually being said, as long as the coffee's good, as long as there's several venues that they can watch the service, as long as they see their friends, and as long as there's programs that'll meet all their needs, then it really doesn't matter what's said from God's word. May that never happen at One Hope Church. And may God help us to encourage other church bodies in Metro Atlanta and across the nation to be faithful, to keep God's word central, Big churches, middle-sized churches, little churches. All big churches are not bad. I want to make that clear. There's some big churches that God is using in a phenomenal way to advance the glory of God. There's some big churches that have people that are dedicated and ministers that are dedicated to his word faithfully. So may God help all congregations to keep God's word central. Then lastly, we see in Nehemiah chapter 8, in verse 5 and 6, they showed reverence and respect for God's word. Nehemiah 8 and verse 5, part of that it says, As he opened it, all the people stood. As he opened it, all the people stood. Many of you were at a wedding on a particular Friday night, August 5th, in Talmo, Georgia, as we all stood when Rachel began to walk down the aisle. Why did we do that? Because we were showing respect for, for her. How much more so, and it doesn't have to be in the physical act of standing, but how much more so when we open or when we're in the hearing of God's word, may we show deep reverence and respect because it's not just a black leather bound book, but this represents the very words of God Almighty This represents the very words of the God of the universe who says, I love you and I sent my son to die for you and I have principles that I want you to live by because they're for your good. God, may I stand in your presence and give you reverence and respect for your word. We also see in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. So in plain English, the people, they're basically saying, so be it. As Ezra blessed the Lord, and probably this was a prayer, as Ezra prayed and and prayed to the great God, then people said, so be it. Yes, we agree. And it's interesting in different areas of the world to see how people express their reverence for God. It's different in India. It's different in Brazil. Uh, I went to a a mostly African-American church with one of my friends. Some of you met him, Mark uh, Franks, who came uh, at Alton Elementary School. And in that particular body, many times they would say, well, you know what they're saying? I agree. If If that's God's word, then I agree with that. And in whatever way you say it or think it, may we all, as God's word is presented, hear or in our own time, may we say, God, so be it in my life. May I show reverence and respect for your word.